Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Today's show is sponsored by Audible, the home of over 150,000 audiobooks. To get a free, yes, free audiobook, go to audibletrial.com forward slash queens and go find yourself something awesome to listen to today. This week's book is The Captive Queen by Alison Ware, another historical fiction book about the life of Eleanor of Aquitaine. Ware is one of my favourite historical fiction writers, and this book is one of her best works. And it's free when you sign up for a trial membership at audibletrial.com forward slash queens. And better yet, by doing so, you'll be showing your support for the Queens of England podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 10, Anna of Aquitaine, a captive mother of a captive son. In 1173, Eleanor was captured by forces loyal to her husband and was now his captive. Henry was not going to execute his wife. Capital punishment was incredibly rare for nobles and almost unheard of for noble women in this period. What Henry wanted to do was completely isolate his wife, and he managed to do so extremely effectively. We don't have any kind of reliable information as to where she was held, but we do know that it was somewhere in rural England far away from the continent, which is where all the action was taking place. For a woman who demanded the use of her own agency and a fierce protector of the rights of her children, her absence from the political stage must have been maddening. Her incarceration, though, was not just a means of taking her out of the action, it was also designed to keep their children in line. It is always dangerous to attempt to ascertain the affection held between members of families of the Middle Ages, as we just don't have the source material to do it with any kind of accuracy. That said... From what can be gleaned, it does appear that it had some effect on controlling the boys. For Richard, he seized the opportunity that the peace settlement had given him to truly make his name as a soldier. Henry II had given him the responsibility of suppressing revolts in Aquitaine. The fact that it had been him and Eleanor had been largely responsible for stirring the said revolt cannot have been lost on him, but it did not stop him from taking his shot. Indeed, his mother would have likely been as reticent as Henry in giving him the power in the land that he was due to inherit, but with her out of the picture, Richard was free to act more or less as he wished. The reputation that Richard was to forge in his campaigns in Aquitaine began to create the image of Richard the Lionheart that we know and love today, but more on that later. So, what about Henry the Young? Well, while Richard was fond of war, Henry the Young preferred pretend war. His passion was for tournaments and the glamorous sides of rulership. In many ways, he was far more the son of Aquitaine than Richard. 
He was also a fan of a good strop. He had very good reasons to resent his father, but unlike Richard, who was proving his worth in Aquitaine, Henry preferred to moan, something that seems to have really gotten his father's nerves. Henry the Young was still a junior king and therefore heir to the whole realm, but he was still very much impatient for power. This impatience boiled over into a second civil war in 1183, when Henry the Young decided to pick a fight with Richard. Jealous of the independence that his younger brother had, he sided with the rebels in Aquitaine against his father and brother. This second civil war within the family occurred without the direct influence of Eleanor, who was still imprisoned in England, but really it was just a rekindling of the flames that she had stoked back in the 1170s. This time, the outcome of the war was far more decisive, as Henry the Young succumbed to a plight of dysentery in May 1183 while besieged by the king and Richard. It is said that, on his deathbed, he begged his father to forgive his mother, and it's probably this that led to Eleanor's first public appearance in over a decade. Henry realised that, now the civil wars were over, he could start to use Eleanor as his own tool. She was still held in England, but would be periodically allowed to return briefly to the court if it suited Henry's purposes. If you have seen The Lion in Winter, and if you haven't, stop the podcast right now and go watch it, then you will know what I'm talking about. The events in the film are fictitious, but it does show the kinds of uses that the incarcerated Eleanor could provide Henry. The reason why Henry needed his wife was caused by yet more dynastic squabbling. The death of Henry the Young had left Richard as the heir to the throne, and so Henry planned for Richard to give up the Duchy of Aquitaine to his younger brother John, so as to give him the land that he so craved, and in so doing, maintain the balance of the Angevin Empire once he had died. Combining the titles of king and duke would create a very unbalanced inheritance, and so this made the world of sense to Henry. To do it legally, Eleanor would have to personally take the titles held by Richard back into her own hands, and then redesignate John as her heir. But there was a problem. Richard, who had spent years pacifying his inheritance lands, had absolutely no intention of handing them over to his needy, simpering, stupid, snotty teenage brother. Henry was furious, and told John to fight for his inheritance, essentially countenancing a minor civil war, and John indeed led many raids into Aquitaine, aided by his brother Geoffrey, who wished to cut off a little slice of Aquitaine into the purview of his Duchy of Brittany, which he now held thanks to his marriage to Constance. Henry saw that he could use Eleanor as a pacifying influence on her sons, and so, at the Christmas court in Windsor, she appeared, wearing fur trim gowns funded from the royal treasury, and spent the time with Richard, John, and her daughter Matilda. She was still very much a prisoner, that this limited clemency shown by the king is perhaps an indication that he saw any dangers she posed were outweighed by the advantages that she could offer. A little motherly tough love could be enough to resolve this latest strife without need for further bloodshed. Later the next year, in 1185, Eleanor was summoned to Normandy for an extraordinary ceremony. Perhaps thanks to her skills in conflict resolution, skills that she had not much used in her life up to that point, Richard had reluctantly agreed to relinquish his titles and inheritance of Agatane back into his mother's hands, on the understanding that it would not go to John. It was one thing to lose such an important power base, it was quite another to give it to his chief rival, and so this compromise allowed everyone to save some face. In these appearances, though, Eleanor was still very much Henry's captor. Historian Helen Castor writes about it this way, quote, for Eleanor, this was no moment of political resurrection or practical restitution. She was allowed no initiative, no freedom of movement or action. 
She was the static fulcrum around which her husband and sons could reorder their unstable relationships. In 1186, her stock of sons was further reduced to two, when Geoffrey was unhorsed and killed at a tournament in Paris, and therefore his lands in Brittany and the Vexin were up for grabs, and tensions between Henry and the new French king Philip led to the two kings gathering their armies and meeting at Chateauroux. Neither side wanted to roll the dice and actually fight, the two armies being fairly evenly matched, and so for a fortnight, the only men moving backwards and forward were envoys. In the end, a two-year truce was declared, but to Henry's shock, when the two armies parted, Richard left with Philip. Richard did eventually return to Angevin territory, but then Henry decided it would be a good idea to foment unrest in Aquitaine in revenge. In counter-revenge, boy this family is fun, Richard allied with Philip to besiege his father's castles in Maine, and it is stress over this that finally did it for the old king. On the 6th of July 1189, at his castle of Chinon, with his inheritance plans in pieces, and his two surviving sons yet again in revolt against him, Henry's body could take it no longer, and he died. Henry's death meant liberty for Eleanor. Richard's first act on hearing about the death of his father was to send notice to England ordering his mother's immediate release. The new Queen Mother was now 65 years old, ancient by the standards of the time, but she had lost none of her faculties, and these would be crucial in the coming years. Richard's first task for his mother was to take control of England in the short term. She would have, quote, the power of doing whatever she wished in the kingdom. His father's unexpected death had inconveniently occurred just after Richard had himself stirred up discontent, and so the new king would spend his first month as king subduing the very unrest he had created. This new power that Eleanor now held was in excess of any that she had wielded while the queen consort. Unconstrained by the shackles, both figurative and real, that her husbands had forced her into, she was now the head, however temporary, of the government of England. Roger of Howden describes her movements thusly. Quote, she moved from city to city, and from castle to castle, just as she thought proper, and sending messengers throughout the counties of England, ordered all captives should be liberated from prison and confinement for the good of Henry, her lord, inasmuch as, in her own person, she had learned by experience that confinement is distasteful to mankind, and that it is a most delightful refreshment to the spirits to be liberated thereof. Being a widow clearly agreed with Eleanor. She was able to do this as her powers seemed to derive exclusively from that of her son, and so was accepted without resentment. She was also seen as a unifying figure, as she had played very little part in the near-constant civil war between her husband and sons. In September 1189, Eleanor arranged the most magnificent coronation ceremony for her favourite son, Richard, which included a crown so massive that it was necessary for two earls to stand by the king in case it should cause him injury. Her influence did not wane after the coronation. Richard relied much on his mother's experience, and she became his right-hand man. As of yet, the king was unmarried, and so Eleanor played the role that you might have expected the consort to have played. At first, he used her as a troubleshooter, best shown by how she helped resolve a long-running dispute at Canterbury. The archbishop, the most powerful churchman in England, had been having a bitter dispute with the monks of the Canterbury Cathedral Priory, with the latter being under siege, sustained only by gifts of food from the townspeople. This dispute had been going on for over a year, but against the odds, Eleanor managed to broker a settlement without allowing meddling from Rome. Indeed, on her orders, a legate that had been sent by the Pope was detained at Dover. So, 
how long would her authority last? Well, for quite a while, as it turns out, as Richard was about to emulate Eleanor's most famous act. Just as his mother had done so 40 years before, Richard had announced that he would take the cross and go on crusade to the Holy Land to recapture the city of Jerusalem that had fallen to Saladin. After raising the necessary funds, he was almost ready to go. There was just one final task to accomplish, and once again he turned to his mother for guidance. Marriage. Before he set off on a cause that could well cost him his life, he needed to secure his position, and marriage would do just that. Now, if you remember from last time, Richard had been betrothed to Alice, the daughter of King Louis, and the sister of the current French king, Philip. This betrothal had been hanging now for over 20 years, and Richard showed no enthusiasm for moving it forward. Alice had been a dynastic pawn all her life, shuffled from court to court as a hostage, and then quite probably a lover of King Henry, and Richard quite understandably had little interest in his father's sloppy seconds. It was time for a new match. While he attempted to smooth things over with Philip, he set Eleanor the task of finding him a wife. Her choice was Berengaria, the daughter of the King of Navarre, a small kingdom just the other side of the Pyrenees from Aquitaine. She personally travelled to the court of King Sancho and escorted her across two mountain ranges to Sicily, where Richard was waiting. I'm not going to talk very much about Berengaria in this episode, as I'll be talking about her time as queen next time. Her soon-to-be daughter-in-law delivered, Eleanor then rushed back to her son's realm, where she would rule as regent for the duration of his absence. All the queens that I have talked about so far have wielded power to a degree or another. Well, maybe not Adeliza. But with the possible exception of Stephen's brief time in captivity, never had a king been outside the realm entirely for a significant length of time. Richard may as well have been on the moon. He could not affect any part of the day-to-day running of the kingdom while he was away. With Richard's queen also travelling with him, the most powerful man left in the kingdom was William Longchamp, the Bishop of Ely, who ruled as Lord Chancellor and Chief Justiciar. But he was a man of humble origins and a Norman. While Eleanor was away on the continent, he would call the shots. But once Eleanor returned, things would be very different. Now, you're probably wondering why I haven't been talking about John for a while. Well, he is about to make his grand return to the stage. Even the strongest revisionist fans of John acknowledge that he was a bit of a spoiled brat, and I am no revisionist as far as he is concerned. He was a little shit, and he was about to cook up holy hell while his brother was away. In a nutshell, John was jealous. He had known all his life that he was his father's favourite son, and so he harboured hopes that eventually he would be named as heir rather than any of his brothers. Pretty much every civil war that had occurred in the last two decades had occurred because of Henry trying to give John lands or titles that belonged or were promised to his brothers. Richard, of course, knew better than most what an odious little shit John was, and so on his accession to the throne, he attempted to buy John off. He gave him the county of Mortain, and when coupled to the lands that he ruled in the name of his wife, Isabella of Gloucester, they made him rich enough for most people in the world to be content, but John wanted it all. Foreseeing trouble, Eleanor and Richard devised a scheme. John would only be allowed into England while Richard was away, with the express permission of the Lord Chancellor Longchamp. Quite why they thought John would abide by these terms is anyone's guess, but then maybe they had no choice but to trust to his honour. Sadly, John had no honour. Did I mention that I don't like John? His current bugbear was a treaty agreed while Richard was in Sicily that named his nephew Arthur of Brittany as his heir presumptive. Here's a cool fact. 
A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This coupled with Richard's recent marriage meant that John was extremely unlikely to come to the throne through natural means. He would only gain it by seizing it. He needed an excuse, and thanks to Longchamp's bungling, he found one. As I said, Longchamp was a Norman, and the English were getting a little sick of Normans. They were culturally different, and Longchamp never made any attempt to ingratiate himself with his English lords. While Eleanor was still away in Sicily, John stirred up their resentment and launched an armed revolt against him. After a few sieges and skirmishes, the arrival of the Queen Mother and Walter, Archbishop of Rouen, settled things down. A peace was negotiated, and Longchamp was given the boot, replaced in his role by Walter, while the Queen installed herself in Rouen to keep an eye on things on the continent. Surely now that his mother was back, and a competent person in charge, John would calm down? Nope. He wanted to be named as regent, and believed it was his solemn right to be so, but he had been thwarted yet again. He needed powerful allies, and one such man was just returning from the Holy Land. Philip, the King of the French, had just gotten back from the Holy Land after only four months, after having had the mother of all fallouts with Richard. He wanted revenge, and offered John the hand of his sister Alice and all the lands in Anjou that Philip held in his hands. And yes, this is the same Alice that had been betrothed to Richard and had been Henry II's mistress. Clearly, John had no problem with sloppy thirds. The fact that he was already married, of course, was of no consequence to him. So, England's nobles were caught between a rock and a hard place. Disloyalty to the crown was very dangerous, but Richard was a long way away on a very dangerous journey that had already claimed the life of one king. They dared not risk treason, but they dared not cross the man who would likely be the next king. With all the money and power that his combined land holdings would control, coupled with a French alliance, John looked like an unstoppable force. England's only hope was her immovable object, Eleanor. As Richard of Devizes put it, quote, Who could be so savage or cruel that this woman could not bend him to her wishes? She was herself still the arbiter of the future of Aquitaine. She was herself still the arbiter of the future of Aquitaine, a sizable chunk of the Angevin Empire, and so John dare not cross her completely. 
She convened several great courts, and under the threat of confiscation of his lands, her youngest son was cowed into submission. Eleanor would now take up the reins of power in England, as only she had the power to cow her son. Where everyone else had failed, Eleanor had succeeded, and with Richard now on his way back from the Holy Land, she had surely secured everything for a safe return. But there was another problem. Leopold of Austria. Richard's exploits on the crusade were legendary, but his pride and vanity meant that he had a unique talent on it for creating enemies. Repudiating Philip of France's sister had made him a bitter enemy, and he had also hacked off the Germans while in Sicily. And then, on campaign, he also alienated Leopold of Austria. The Siege of Acre had been the first major battle of the Crusade, and it had been a long and bloody one. When eventually the Crusading army triumphed, the flags of the two major powers, England and France, flew over the city. But when Leopold raised his own banner, English soldiers tore it down, as Austria was not considered a major power. This insult would not be forgotten, and it would severely bite Richard in the backside on his return to the west. On his way to the Holy Land, Richard had travelled by sea, but it was November by the time that he wished to return, which was too late in the year to travel back that way. His alienation of the French and German kings made finding a safe land route tricky, but there was a path through vaguely friendly territory available. But, unfortunately, it required a jaunt through, you guessed it, Austria. Richard knew the risks, but he judged that Austria was too weak to risk war with such a man as Richard the Lionheart. Travelling in disguise, he made it to within 50 miles of the border, but was then discovered and thrown into the castle dungeons at Dernstein. The news sent shockwaves throughout Europe, and Philip and John wasted no time before acting. John travelled to Paris, where he confirmed his alliance with Philip and promised to marry his sister Alice. John wanted the crown. For Eleanor, there was no time to grieve over the capture of her elder son, nor was there a chance of siding with her younger. The realm was under attack, and it was up to her to organise its defence. She had aides, but no one was under any doubt that she was the one in command. While Philip gathered a naval force, John snuck back into England to raise an army from within, but he reckoned without his mother. Eleanor knew her sons better than they knew themselves, and she knew that John was no military leader, and so it turned out. After a series of defeats, John was forced to come to terms. Beaten by his own mother, there are few greater humiliations in medieval Europe than that. The kingdom once again secured, Eleanor now set about solving the next urgent problem, the small matter of Richard's ransom of 100,000 marks. That was an absolutely incredible sum of money, and it was soon increased by 50% as Leopold threatened to transfer Richard to a French prison, a place that everyone knew he would never emerge from as long as he lived. Eleanor's first tactic was to go over the head of the Germans and Austrians by appealing directly to the Pope with some heart-wrenching letters. I have included them in the show notes at thequeensofenglandpodcast.com, but I will quote a portion of one of them here. Quote, Mother of mercy, look on a mother of such misery, or if your son, an endless font of mercy, exact the sins of the mother from the son, let him exact them only from the one who sinned. Let him punish the impious, not laugh at the punishments of the innocent. Who began my life? Let him destroy me. Let him take his hand and cut me off. And let this be my consolation, that afflicting me with pain, he not spare me. Pitiful and pity by no one, why have I come to the ignominy of this detestable old age, who was the ruler of two kingdoms, mother of two kings? 
My guts are torn from me. My family is carried off and removed from me. The young king and the Duke of Brittany, her sons Henry and Geoffrey, sleep in dust, and their most unhappy mother is compelled to be irredeemably tormented by the memory of the dead. Two sons remain to my solace, who today survive to punish me, miserable and condemned. King Richard is held in chains. His brother John depletes the kingdom with iron sword and lays it waste with fire. You would have to have a heart of stone to ignore those pleas. Sadly, a stone heart is exactly what Pope Clementine had. The vast ransom would have to be paid, and eventually, in December 1193, after nearly a year in captivity, the first down payment was received by Emperor Henry and Duke Leopold. But still, the issue was not settled, because Philip and John frantically attempted to outbid Eleanor in an attempt to keep the king in chains while they planned a second attempt on England. To sort things out, a gathering of German princes was called in February, and now the 70-year-old Eleanor went to plead the case of her son, carrying with her the ungodly sum of money that was Richard's ransom. The negotiations between Eleanor and the Germans were, quote, anxious and difficult, but eventually Emperor Henry was persuaded that he had to honour the original agreement. The clincher being Eleanor's suggestion that Richard surrender England to the Empire and then receive the title of king back as an imperial title. This was a meaningless gesture in practical terms, but it was genius propaganda. Eventually, on the 4th of February 1194, mother and son were reunited. Together, they travelled in triumph all the way back to England, where Richard presided over a grand homecoming court ceremony, where he sat in all his pomp, with an enormous crown on his head, and sat next to him was not his wife, but his mother. There can be no greater symbol of influence or power than that. And then came Eleanor's greatest triumph of diplomacy. With war with France now in full swing, Eleanor and Richard travelled to the continent to take Philip on head-on. According to Roger of Howden, at Lisieux, Prince John himself came and threw himself upon the mercy of his brother, and an agreement was made, quote, through the mediation of Queen Eleanor. The brothers embraced, and John's treachery forgiven. Her work done, Eleanor retired to the Abbey of Fontevraud in Aquitaine, where no doubt she hoped to live out the rest of her life in peace, safe from the knowledge that her elder son was now secure on the throne, safe from the machinations of her younger son. And for five years, she remained relatively cut off from political life in her rich apartments, a comfortable end to a long and eventful life. But her life had one final and tragic act left. In 1199, the 75-year-old queen received shocking news. Richard the Lionheart had been fatally wounded by an arrow while besieging the castle of Chalichabreau. Eleanor rushed to his son's side and watched him die on the 6th of April. After burying a fourth son, Eleanor rushed her only surviving boy, John, who had inherited the throne due to Richard not producing a legitimate heir. More on that next time. John's succession, though, was far from uncontested as enemies of the Angevin regime on the continent rallied behind Arthur, Duke of Brittany, who was the son of Eleanor's dead son, Geoffrey, and one-time heir to the throne. Eleanor's task in this new war was to lead Aquitaine's armies into battle, in support of her son. She led an army into Anjou on a campaign of shock and awe, before then moving north to meet her ex-husband's son, the King of the French. Legally speaking, she had to pay homage for her lands in Aquitaine, and in doing so would leave no right for Arthur, her grandson, to claim the lands for himself. 
She then named John as her successor and then spent months on the road on a goodwill tour, stopping off at all her vassals, impressing on them the importance of loyalty to the crown. The next stop on her tour was Spain. In order to secure peace with Philip, a marriage alliance had been agreed between his son Louis and one of John's nieces, since he had no sons of his own. Anna therefore went to Spain to visit her namesake daughter, and selected her youngest daughter Blanca as the most suitable to become the future Queen of the French. Eleanor had travelled over 1,500 miles in the past six months, and on the trip back over the Pyrenees, the first signs of her health failing began to appear. She entrusted the rest of the journey to a vassal, and, according to Roger of Howden, quote, Wearied by old age and the labours of her long journey, Queen Eleanor withdrew to the Abbey of Fontevraud and remained there. There she would remain, but for one last crisis. For complex reasons that I will not go into, John had managed to screw things up once again and had provoked war again with Philip thanks to a very ill-advised marriage to Isabella of Angoulême. More of that in a later episode. Philip declared John's French lands forfeit, including Aquitaine. So, 78 years old, Eleanor was forced to hurry to Poitou to organise the defence of her duchy. Her grandson Arthur marched against her and Eleanor knew that a relief force from John was days away. But surrender was not an option, and her hastily arranged defence held until John arrived. The conflict with Philip was far from over, but this would be her last action in it. Her actions had saved the duchy, but it had drained the last of her strength, and her new retirement to Fontevraud would be permanent. As the fortunes of her son collapsed across France, on the 31st of March 1204, Eleanor of Aquitaine died at the ripe old age of 80 at Fontevraud, and was buried there alongside her husband and two of her children, Richard and Joanna. Eleanor of Aquitaine led one of the most colourful and controversial lives of any Queen of England. It took three episodes to cover her life, and this really was just the tip of the iceberg. There was so much that I had to exclude for time. She was the Queen of both France and England, not to mention the Duchess of Aquitaine, She outlived both her husbands, as well as all but two of her ten children. She had overcome the limits placed on her sex by medieval society, become the most powerful woman in all of Europe, and one of its most powerful figures, even amongst all the men. But was she a successful Queen of England? Assessing Eleanor is not an easy task, not least because of the sheer length of her life. She was a belligerent and impetuous woman, but it was a belligerent and impetuous time to be alive. It took a very long time for her to learn the subtlety and diplomatic skill that was her trademark in later life. As Queen of the French, she struggled to restrain her own ambition, as well as her distaste for her rather pathetic husband. As the Queen Consort of England, she was successful in producing heirs, though I think if there had been a few fewer, it might have been for the best. The first part of her reign was far more in line with that of her predecessors. Lots of travel, ruling parts of the kingdom while her husband looked after the rest... But of course, it all unravelled when she supported her sons in revolt, and lost over a decade of her life in prison. It is as Queen Mother and Regent of England that Eleanor is the most successful, guiding England through the absence of her king, both intentional and unintentional, and for the Herculean task of raising Richard's ransom. Eventually, time caught up with Eleanor, but it has not forgotten her. She may not have been England's most successful queen, indeed, I wouldn't even put her as the most successful so far, but she is certainly one of her most memorable. Next time, 
We'll backtrack a little bit and look at the reign of Richard I's wife, Berengaria of Navarre, a woman who spent her entire reign under the shadow of her indomitable mother-in-law. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.